Welcome to the podcast. It's the worst territory in the world. Personalities, history, and other stories. We know you're craving for more knowledge. Let the champions get their glory. It's the worst territory in the world. All right, everybody, welcome in. It is the worst territory in the world. I'm Ben Miller sitting with Chris Goff, my tag team partner for this next hour, where we talk everything about the worst territory in the world. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you feeling today? Well, I've just got done yelling at my kids. I'm sick of uh, they always interrupt stuff. And I'm, you know, when life is really, you know, I'm looking forward to stuff. They always drag it down, Gabe. You're, you'll find that out as your daughter gets older. But no, I'm looking forward to it. The worst territory in the world, in case you don't know out there, is the central states. And I was saying this tongue in cheek. I, I get some people have emailed saying, like, hey, I really like Kansas City. Why are you guys being so mean about it? This is a joke because people that we like i like jim Cornette, rick flair not a huge fan but anyway he's a huge star they don't like kansas city because of many reasons low pay uh you know they they didn't like the drives they didn't for some reason like bob geigel shower shoes that's why we call it what we call it and that's what we that's what we're doing here gabe so i'm looking forward to talking and we have a big interview that i got to take part in earlier today with a longtime central states wrestler multi-time heavyweight champion mike george and we'll get to that a little bit later nice i am very excited to hear that interview and i'm sure it is going to be an education in everything, uh, Central States Territory Wrestling. Now, Chris, um, you know, you were talking about your daughter, um, or uh, you were talking about my daughter being a pain in the keister perhaps when she gets older. But one thing, I, sure. you know, around the old Miller household today, I don't think anything can set your day off better than my dog just rolled in diarrhea. <laughs> You know, I, I was, uh, I was some doing... animal, Chris, it was some animal and he came in and he was literally neck covered neck down in diarrhea. Now, Chris, since having my daughter, I have a strong stomach, but boy, let me tell you, that was about to push me over the edge. That was pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, not to go too far down the Vince McMahon rabbit hole here. Cause he would love talking about puke and poop, but I just, I, you know, is that true? Yeah, yes, let me he does. He, he always called it feces okay. too. He never said feces. We always said, why does he say feces? <laughs> but uh, yes, he was a big toilet humor guy. All the, all the rumors about Vince being a toilet humor guy are all true, but yes, uh, we, I commented all on all the time. I'm on a radio station here in Kansas city a couple times a week. And I always bring up, the fact that the animals in my house and my children are constantly puking at some point in the day i have to go and clean it up it's disgusting and uh you know it's it's adds levity to life gabe it really does it, it really does and, and and we'll get off this subject real quick but i you know when being a new father i'm a you know for those of you who don't know i'm a i'm a recent uh dad of my uh beautiful daughter eloise and the game-changing thing for me, Chris, you know, when she came out, it wasn't like, you know, all the dads I've ever talked to talked about how the moment I saw her, I, you know, or him, or I knew that they were, I was going to die for that. I would die for them. And they were the best thing that ever happened to me and blah, blah, blah. That wasn't the game-changing pivotal mo moment for me, Chris. The pivotal moment for me was the first time changing her diaper and you see poop coming out of another human's butt. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a big moment. It really is. It's, it's happened a couple times for me, and uh, to, to me, it, there's nothing bigger. I was just like, "Wow, this! I've never seen this before, and I, my life is forever changed." Now, of course, 
as time has gone on, I'm like, she's the most beautiful thing in the world. But I mean, that was the game changer for me, Chris. That was that that was my my seminal moment uh, thus far in fatherhood. Well, I, I do want to transition straight from poop out of your daughter's butt straight into what I think is a bunch of load of poop as well as uh, one of Ooh. our very good friends and uh, former Central States heavyweight champion here for uh, Metro Pro Wrestling, by the way, Ace Steel, was let go by AEW. Now, this is yes. I have battled with people on Twitter since this went down because, number one, I don't need to know every detail that happened in the uh, whatever size locker room it was because I know the guy. So he's a friend of mine. I don't need to sit here and understand uh, what, you know, who did this first and did it. Kenny Omega, he was really trying to save the dog, which I seriously doubt. Uh, Me and you, Gabe, we both know Lucy, uh, Ace's wife. She's also a a female wrestler. We we love her. Uh, She was in there. I had seen her the week before. She was on crutches. So I know her ankle was completely messed up. So, Yes. she's in there and a steel uh is the most loyal friend and like uh obviously cm punk is his best friend and uh based on everything that you read i don't believe anything that i heard about a steel except the fact that he went in there uh trying to defend uh his friend and his wife in a really weird situation now granted there. CM Punk was strong in the media scrum, which I think is so stupid anyway. The media scrum in general is just dumb. I mean, we're not talking about true like journalists in this room. We're talking about anyone from that has, you know, Larry's wrestling blog.net to some eight-year-old that's trying to interview people. I mean, it's cute. It's nice. I, I think it's cute to have people involved and fans, but at the end of the day, do they really need to be doing a scrum at 2 a.m.? It's dumb. But I digress. A steel, uh, it's a travesty. He was like go and i hope that um you know he gets stays in the wrestling world at some point because this dude is a great guy and he's a great teacher uh, obviously he's taught cm punk adam pierce colt cabana all these guys and by the way the fact that all this is over colt cabana is laughable to me and uh you know ace is great and i know he'll land on his feet somewhere yeah. And, uh, you know, I got to say, Chris, you know, obviously we're not going to comment uh, or, or speculate or give our our opinions as to who is in the wrong, what, when, where and how. Like you said, we both are emotionally invested in both uh, Lucy and Ace, especially. Um, I will say, though, one of the most pivotal moments for me as a wrestling fan was obviously when um, Ace came on board on, on the NWL and I, you know, being a longtime indie fan, I obviously was a little awestruck. I was like, holy, holy crap, this is Ace Steel. You know, the the trainer of trainers, the legend, you know, all these other kind of stuff. And I'll never forget when before an NWL show, he was hosting a training camp for some of the guys that were uh, guys and gals that were working, not working that night. I have still I have seen a lot of people coach or train and i'm using the air quotes um in my years in the business and there has never been outside of uh mike quackenbush seminar i know i'm not supposed to mention mike quackenbush because he's canceled too or whatever um but i've never seen somebody so proficiently i mean the way he was he was mentoring these students he taught me so much about professional wrestling just watching the seminar about footwork and about hitting the ropes and all these things. And it's, it, it is a travesty in the fact that AEW has lost 
an important coach backstage, a very important coach. Yeah, the thing about the the thing about Ace that you're talking about here is that the guy has passion. And I also was uh, I was fired from WWF years ago, and I had a lot of passion as well. And the problem is, I the passionate people usually don't sit back and hide under a cubicle, so they don't keep a job for 20 years. That's that's the truth. And Ace is not that kind of guy. Now, Ace has been involved with WWE now at the Performance Center. He's been a producer on the road for them as well. And then he goes to AEW, was a producer there. Uh, he had a little bit of on-air stuff there. But I, I think he really wants to you know, focus on behind-the-scenes stuff because he is so good. He, he's, he's trained, like I said, big names, and he's – He's been around both major companies in the world today and understands how television and live events work as a producer. So um, he he's a smart dude. I, I just you know, the fact that all this has gone down the way it has is, is really a travesty because this is a guy who um, you want backstage. I mean, I'm not going to name names, but I know there's there's people on both companies now that are agents that are, or producers and they're there collecting a check because they have to okay and i understand we all need to pay the bills this is every company in the world okay if you work in a corporate environment there are people that work next to you in a cubicle or down the hall that don't do anything and you're like these people are horrible they should be fired but they don't be (laughs) they're not because they that that's not that's how the world works it's not fair or unfair i think I, i learned that at a young age and uh, Ace and we is, learned that in the NWL. And we learned that there. But Ace is uh, <laughs> Ace is one of these guys that is not going to sit back and be quiet and just like be happy to take a paycheck. He's a guy that wants to get his hands dirty and actually do stuff. And you know, I think when the true truth comes out at some point, uh, you know, because I do think it has been heavily weighed on one side of this, yeah, uh, based agree. on how it is quote unquote being reported by wrestling journalists. Um, you know, just because one side doesn't talk doesn't mean that the other side is completely right. I that's you know I learned that in broadcast school from day one. So uh, why would you talk if you're that side? First of all, there's obviously legal ramifications that are involved in this, but otherwise, like uh, the the way this has been handled uh, as far as uh, as part as like a news proliferation out there has been ridiculous. And I I've been super critical about guys. Uh, saying what they think happened and putting it out there as gospel because it's I first of all they don't know anybody involved personally and so and and secondly you know me and you have been around Ace for years um he is not the kind of guy that they are portraying in these stories. No, so uh, no, he's not, not some either. loose cannon that's going to walk nope. into a room, start throwing chairs and biting people nope. for no reason. So nope. uh you know it's it's we can go on and on about it, but at the end of the day, yeah. I know that he's a stand-up dude, and I'm proud to call him a friend, and uh, I would always take his side in battle anytime. All right, so real quick before we transition to this interview that you have, I wanted to ask you a couple little bit uh, – I don't know, Goff, uh, kind of update people. Do you watch a lot of the modern product? I do. I will watch. I will watch AEW and WWE, but I don't. I don't go out of my way to watch, uh, you know, New Japan much or AAA or you know a lot of the top indie. I don't have a, a streaming account for ind- independent wrestling, but yeah, I watch the big companies, especially now. I mean, it's it's sort of interesting again ba- based on what has happened backstage at AEW and then also what's happened backstage at WWE with Vince being out of power. Like you know, when I was working there with Vince twenty years ago, if you would have told me that hey, Vince McMahon won't be in power before he dies okay that i wouldn't have believed you but i i do because of that so i uh, speaking of triple a so i 
I watched Triple Mania. I, I have actually been, you know, not a lot of people know this. I've been a Lucha Libre fan mildly off and on for years because back in the day when I first got into pro wrestling, one of the channels, one of the only channels I could get on my antenna in my apartment in Southern California was Galafision, which was a Mexican broadcasting channel. And I used to watch Lucha Libre and my, my entire apartment complex was Hispanic people. So I learned very young about, you know, uh, Hispanic culture and all this kind of stuff. So I used to watch a lot of Lucha Libre. Now, the one thing that always fascinated me, Chris, is, and I was watching this on Triple Mania, and we've seen it on Abdullah the Butcher, how in, a, you know, knowing the inner workings of the business, and a lot of people listening to this think they know the inner workings of the business, but how in the world, Chris, do they get those giant divots in their head? This repetition, of course, right? I mean, just I, I, but how can it, you put a quarter it, in Abby's head because he's done it a million times and the paper thin skin just doesn't come back. But, but okay, so hypothetically, we're going to say Ric Flair has bled quite a bit in his career, right? Quite a bit. Yes. What? Where's the Where's the giant divots there? You know, everybody's different physiologically too. But you know, Dusty had some horrible, horrible forehead <laughs> as well. I mean, I, I don't know if you want to go genetics or just you know where to blade more. I mean, definitely you're talking about when you're talking about Dusty and Abby. You're not talking about two guys that are super vain. Okay, so uh, I don't think they cared as much maybe as Ric Flair. So a lot of the guys you talk to some of the, the Dr. Toms people you've heard talk about this a little bit. They go hairline a little bit like right. By the hairline, so maybe it doesn't. You know, I'm sure if you, I'm sure if you got close to Ric Flair's head, you would see plenty of plenty of lines. I, I, it was just such a fascinating thing for me because I saw the last match, which was Pentagon versus Viano Four in a mask versus mask match, and uh, Viano loses, takes off his mask, which is a big deal in Lucha Libre, and he's got these giant craters in his head from years of blading, and I'm just like, and it just it came to mind. I was like, why? Like, is it like? And I remember watching Pedro Aguario when he would blade. I mean, in Lucha Libre, it's a little bit different, but it's a very obvious thing, right? Sure. Like, it's a, like, hey, look, uh, you know, rake, 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 rake. And it just, and I'm like, is it, I, and I just wondered if you had any inside knowledge of like whether it's backstage or what you've heard of, like, is it just culturally, it's just like go for the bone and just, you know, get as much juice as you can and move on with your life? Because, I mean, the the scarring is just so different. It's just really fat. I know it's a weird subject. Well, it, no, it's it's a it's a big subject. I thought you, the, the, when you start talking about blading, I thought you're going to go into like all the risks that are involved in that in today's world, based on the fact that kayfabe is dead and like why are we still you know sawing ourselves to our bone? Nope. Right? But you're nope. talking about just the the amount of it. You know, I, obviously, I can't speak to uh, you know the Hispanic tradition of that. In America, traditionally, blading uh, up to like you know the last. 10 years or so or whatever has been basically uh for a blow off is when you would do that and and at that you didn't have that many of those unless you were a guy that just lived on it like abdullah the butcher you know <laughs> i mean even dusty didn't do it as much but he just had some horrendous like uh forehead from uh from years of that even dr tom i mean dr tom you can see it on him a lot of guys in the territory did it because they would do it back in the territories more because they had a different show every night and if they had a a blood match that they were paying off around the loop they do it more often but um you know i I don't know. It's it is a it is an interesting the, the art of blading is an interesting topic. Where you keep the blade, 
how often you do it. You know, is it your calling card? Are you expected to do that all the time? I mean, look at Brody's head, for God's sakes. I mean, this guy, he had – that one was horrible too. So the, the ones that did it, they really knew how to do it. I yeah I I just I it was kind of it takes me aback because you know obviously we see John Moxley do it every other match now in AEW I mean he takes a spill on the floor and he's just like hey good time you know and you know with the revival of deathmatch wrestling which is a whole other subject we we should talk about deathmatch wrestling on here at, at a certain point. We I should. Think... I mean, I there's been, I think there's always a part of us as fans that have enjoyed that. I mean, I loved ECW when I when I was you know high teens living in Connecticut in a basement of this house paying more than I've ever paid for rent in my life for this dump of a place with $25 worth of furniture that was quote-unquote, you know, furnished. Um, When I was watching a 2 a.m. episode on MSG of ECW, when these guys were doing all this crazy stuff, it was awesome. And I think most people agree, and I still will go back and watch ECW pay-per-views, but most people would agree it doesn't hold up. It it doesn't. It it doesn't, and it stinks because I loved ECW. We're talking – and a lot of people like different eras. I like ECW like 96 to 98, you know, sort of pre-TNA – or sorry, TNT era, or TNN era, I should say, pre-TNN era uh, when they went national. I liked them, uh, you know, 97, 98. Those are some banner years for ECW. But when you go back, it just doesn't hold up. And I think that's just because, you know, uh, we have been desensitized to everything that happens in wrestling now just because of overuse. We've seen it so many times. All right, Chris. Well, now that we're off the topic of blading, let's talk about the interview that you conducted earlier today. Now, tell us, uh, give us a little bit of backstory before we get to that interview. Yeah, Central States, of course, is what we're talking about mostly on this podcast, and and just our love of you know anything from the back when it started in the mid century to all the way to today in independent land. And we will have Michael Stride on here at some point to talk about his. His newest incarnation of Central States Wrestling, uh, because trying to keep that tradition alive. But one of the guys that I got to speak with on the Casey on the Mad documentary was Mike George. And he was a guy who was very well known. He started here in the 70s. He's from St. Joe, got some seasoning in Florida, and ended up moving up to uh, back to Kansas City a lot. And he was a multi-multi-time Central States heavyweight champion. And frankly, Gabe, he, he's one of the few guys that I interviewed for that documentary that's still alive, which is sad. Um, he is in his, I would assume his, I want to say his low to mid seventies now, and he's still a lovable guy. He still works at seven street casino in KCK. Everyone in case he's a hero in KCK. He went from wrestling nights, uh, you know, Thursday nights all the time in KCK Memorial hall to Woodlands where he was the security guard to now over at uh seven street casino. But he is, he is synonymous with Central States wrestling in this area. Um, Harley Race, and I bring this up in the interview, Harley Race actually told me once that uh, he was exactly like Harley Race, except uh, Harley got lucky and Mike didn't. And Mike will talk about how he chose family and being around his kids other than trying to travel and, you know, taking that hard choice. Because, you know, even in, in broadcasting and in professional wrestling, two, two businesses that I have been a part of, that is a life choice you have to make, and Mike George decided to stick around home more than go out, but uh, he is well-known and well-respected by people uh, in and out of the wrestling community, and here is our interview with Mike George, multi-time Central States champion, who still lives in Kansas City. It's the worst territory. 
Joined now by Mike George, who, of course, a lot of people in the Central States territory know who Mike George is. Multi-time Central States champion. Uh, a guy who Harley Race once told me, Mike, that you were just like him, except he got lucky and you didn't. But joining us now, Mike George. Mike, haven't talked to you in years, man. How are you doing? Very good. I've, I've had things replaced on my body, <laughs> new hip. Uh, yeah, I'm like brand new again almost. <laughs> <laughs> it only took, uh, only took uh, decades for that to all come around to where you're the uh, bionic man now. Yeah, that's what I feel like I am. I looked into getting the shoulder done, but I said, "Nah, I live with the pain on that one." Uh, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard the shoulder's the worst to get surgery on. Actually, yeah, that's so what the doctor told me. He said, "Either live with it or we do it." And I said, "Yeah, I live with it." <laughs> <laughs> Bad choice to make, but uh, we know how you got those injuries. You've entertained people oh, yeah. for many decades, and the the. Topic, the title of this podcast, Mike, uh, it's tongue-in-cheek. We call it the worst territory in the world, referring to central states, because people like Ric Flair, Jim Cornette, people like that always, they they have disparaging comments to say about Kansas City. Usually it's because, well, in Cornette's case, it was because he didn't make as much money as other places. And in Ric Flair, he would say he had a lot of disparaging comments about just Bob Geigel and how he dressed. And, you know, he just didn't say a lot of good things about Kansas Kansas City. Why do you think, as a guy that's from here and wrestled here for so many years, why do people say that about Central States? Uh, well, it was basically it was kind of true. You didn't make a lot of money around here, but the people were good and everything else, the territory, and the trips weren't that long like the other places. And I know that when I was in Carolinas, there were some trips that were unreal, same way with Louisiana. God. I mean, they were long trips. <laughs> yeah. You said you just spent most of your time in your car. You lived out of your car. Here you were back home at nights, and, you know, you had a life a little bit. It seemed like a lot of people, uh, well, when I say that, Ric Flair is obviously one of the top guys of all time. And when, oh, yeah. he, when he says things about Bob Geigel, I can only imagine it's because Ric Flair and Bob Geigel, having met both men, I would say they're probably socially pretty much opposite in terms of one's very flashy and Bob Geigel is a very salt of the earth, pretty quiet, really calm, simple yeah. guy. I like yeah. that. Geigel was the, the flip-flops. <laughs> well, that's what Flair always makes fun of him about is that he wore shower shoes all the time. Oh, yeah. He enjoyed it. Yeah, he was normal. He was down to earth. And anytime you went someplace, you come back, call him. And he say, yeah, when you want to start. I mean, he could get you back in here. It wasn't a problem. Other places they wanted, they were so, you know, it was, well, Louisiana, I, I I was there a lot of that, a lot of time down there too. But is they just people I could call up and then boom, I'd be back in there. No problem again. Basically, that's why I spent most of my time in Louisiana and then up here in Mid-South. Yeah. Mid-South and then, and then, uh, yeah, Central States. That's where I spend my time. You were born and raised in St. Joe, correct? Yep, I was. Okay. So, obviously, that was part of the Central States territory, but you really got started for the majority of the beginning of your career. You were in Florida, correct? I started in Georgia. I went into Georgia. The assassin uh, down there, uh, Jody Hamilton, he got me in down there. Uh, Gus, Gus Karras out of St. Joe sent me down there. And uh, I went there for a while. Then I went to Florida. 
and then uh, down there for a while. Then I went into mid south. That's then I'm then back up home again. Yeah. At the time when you obviously we talk about the territory days, guys were able to go in and out of these territories years at a time, months at a time, and then go somewhere else and you know start anew somewhere yeah. and then come back. Is that I mean is that when people talk about wrestling today, that is the one thing I think that hurts so many of these guys now is that it is hard to get over and stay over for 20 years when you're signed for this long. Yeah, you can't do it. You get hurt, you got to quit, you got to stop and reheal, and these other places they go well up there in New York. I I would never work for them. Basically, never had a chance to. Didn't want to go. Didn't want to go there. Didn't just uh, you know it. It makes your uh, longevity real short because they get hurt and they're gone. You don't see them anymore. Sure. That's why I look at the at what's happening now. Those guys are doing those goofy moves and it only takes <laughs> one time to screw up and you're, you're done. <laughs> yeah, it's it will be interesting to see, speaking of uh, how you've had to have plenty of your joints redone, how will these guys today be when they're in their older age? I, it's hard to say because of, you know, I know that you guys, it seemed like you guys wrestled a lot more because you were doing this multiple times a day, if not five, six, seven times a week. But these guys don't wrestle as often as you guys did, but they do cr- crazier acrobatic things to their body. Oh, yeah. You can only do so much, and after a while, it it catches you. And once it catches you, you're done, basically. It basically, it caught me one time down in uh, Louisiana. I woke up one morning in, in uh, Shreveport, and I couldn't move. My whole body was locked up. Uh, the, I guess the gout got me, or whatever it was, uh, arthritis, my whole body. I, I took three months off then, basically. I got hurt in the ring with the with the chair on my back, and that's it. I I laid off for three months, and then I come back, and uh, I just my heart wasn't there no more like it was. Yeah, just lost it. Yeah, once you lose the desire, it's it, it's over. You might just go do something else. I mean, because you're you put your you're, it's just such a mental thing as much as it is physical to continue on the grind. You guys did. Oh yeah, my my uh, elbow locked up on me too, and. And the doctor told me again, he says, either we can replace it or uh, live with it. And it only bent halfway, so I said, well, I'll live with it. I'm not going to mess with it. And I worried about my knees, but my knees, they, they stayed healthy. Thank God for that. Good. The legs did, except for the hip. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I talked to you about this years ago, but uh, just your perspective on it now. Like I said, Harley Race said that, uh, he said this about Roger Kirby as well, but he he put you and Roger Kirby in the same boat as you guys had the same skills as him. This is his words, but he just got lucky and you didn't, or you guys just didn't want to have the the schedule that he did away from home. Uh, is is that is is that true? Is that Harley being humble? Is that is that how you felt your career went? That's true. He's he basically said if I just need to get out more, well, I just you know I had a family and. Yeah, I didn't, I don't know. I just, I guess I wanted to spend more time at home with the, with the kids growing up and have a life. Sure. Otherwise you don't have a life and you lose things and that's, that's not good. But, but I would, I enjoyed the wrestling. That's no doubt about it. But I enjoyed the going in there and, you know, having them scream and holler at me. I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to, 
if you've never been there, you never understand. I was in New Orleans one time with the Junkyard Dog. We were tag partners down there. Mm-hmm. And the first time I went into New Orleans, I went with him. And and they started the match off, and they were doing the the chant from the, the Queen uh, music. The who going to beat that dog tonight's what they hollering out there. Yeah. And it was just the whole arena was just rocking and rolling. You wouldn't believe. And I said, my God, what have I got myself? <laughs> it was an experience. I'll, I'll never forget that one, though. No. Never forget it. That's uh, that's what I mean. That's the same. I've covered people in professional sports as well. And that that's they miss the camaraderie and they miss the. The being in front of the crowd and doing what they do best. And that, that is hard yeah. to get. That's hard to shake. It is. Yeah. But once you walk away, you got to walk away. <laughs> yeah. It's like Flair. Shame on him getting back in the ring again. Shame on him. I don't think he's I, done. I used to make, see, I'd always tell, this is when I was first starting in Brunzel around here, him and me. We said, we'll never do what they did. You know, hang around that long. It's just you couldn't do it. You, you could just see how they – it just wasn't right. The, 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 they were doing it because that's all they knew. But it was just the idea, I, I want to do something different. I can't do this all my life. You'd like to, <laughs> but it doesn't happen. Sure. It doesn't happen. What was it like to wrestle in Memorial Hall? I mean, th- this building is iconic in the Central States territory. It is an awesome – ornate building we were able to have the documentary that i put together with you guys in it we were able to have the open there but just to walk in the lobby with all the marble and to see that that building was made for you know ring sports whether it be boxing wrestling whatever what was it like to, to wrestle there oh it was, it was a good feel it was always you know you split up and you always had the way the thing was it, it just gave a good atmosphere you always uh you come out where the the bad guys come out of one side, and those people up there they they chant at you and give you a hard time. You come out the uh, the, the good side door. It was great over there too. It, it was it was all around a, a good feel. The building was it's the right angle. Everything everything about the field was just right. I agree. I mean, it's it's like it's as if they placed a ring in there and developed the building around it because yeah, it just yeah. looks like they're still using it for boxing over there and everything else. Roller derby. Yeah. I mean, it's still used. Oh yeah. I my the problem with running shows there just as independent promotions was there's just not a lot of parking around there, and I was thought no, that was just no. hard to get to in some ways. Yeah, the parking down the hill down there on on uh, about six and uh, Barnett down that area. Yeah. I had a long walk up that hill sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. What What do you, uh, speaking of Central States promoters, when you came in, what, was it Bob Geigel that was booking you? Is that, Was it with Pat O'Connor and Harley Race? What was the What was the hierarchy there? Yeah, it was uh, mostly, uh, well, you had Gus there, Gus and St. Joe. Okay. And then uh, they the, were Geigel and O'Connor. Uh, Harley... I'd say he was in between. He came in there a little bit later, not not much later after I started in '72. He was pretty close to buying into it, I think. And then they bought it. Then they all bought into uh, uh, St. Louis, into that area. You go special privileges either on a Friday. You go to St. Louis or you work St. Joe, one or the other. And I was a Gus Karras boy, so 
I spent a lot of time in St. Joe. <laughs> was that? Well, I bet the payday in St. Joe wasn't nearly as much as St. Louis, though. No, no, no. But it had a good. It was such a. It had a good atmosphere too, the old place. But it was cold. Oh my! You look forward to getting in the ring and warm up. <laughs> you can hear the heat come on, and the pipes just start banging. Then all of a sudden, they quit banging because they shut the heat off. <laughs> <laughs> it's too expensive. Oh yeah, that's a big building to heat up there. The old one, yeah. <laughs> well, when we when we ran shows in St. Joe, just a little independent shows, that crowd was always there. I mean, it was always full. Oh yeah. That that town, St. Joseph, Missouri. People around the country might know it as Pony Express, where it was birthed, and and other things. It's Jesse James, stuff like that. But uh, I think it's a great wrestling town. Oh, it was. Yeah, Gus Cares, He he built that basically. To, is the territory for around him and the places he had his towns that he went to and had, had it was it was interesting you know but it's like uh, Kirby and me we were we were St. Joe boys you might say yeah because Kirby bought a, a property up there and, and he he stayed around and he had a lot of guys come out of out of Kansas uh, out of St. Joe that used to be a long time ago there was a lot of well, yeah. I mean, St. Joe is also the birthplace of I, what I consider to be the home of midget wrestling. I mean, Lord Littlebrook, he had a oh, factory yeah. up there, and uh, uh, sadly, most of them are gone now. But that his one of his sons is still around, and uh, yeah. that was that was where it was, right? I mean, promoters that everywhere were looking. Yeah, them. they all worked out of there and went different places. Yep, they they go all over the world. They were, were. Were you friends with Lord Littlebrook and his and his clan? Yeah. All of them, yeah. Yeah. yeah I liked, I liked uh, Little Tokyo. <laughs> Everybody uh, has a good a Little character. Tokyo story. They said he was very funny. He was a comedian. Oh, he was great. I mean, I really was. And it, you couldn't ask for a better friend. You really couldn't. Before he passed away, uh, Billy went up and got him. Billy Howard went and got him in St. Joe and brought him, brought him back up here. And we sat around and drank beer at one of the restaurants here in town. And Billy took him back up. We had a great time talking about old stories and stuff. Oh yeah, <laughs> what a character boy! Yeah, you want him on your side. You don't want him against you. <laughs> <laughs> and they're strong, very strong. <laughs> he gave one of the promoters up there in uh, Portland, Oregon, a hard time. <laughs> really? Oh yeah, yeah. He wasn't happy about the way something happened. Uh, Tokyo wasn't the promoter was. Trying to give him grief? Well, he shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Little Tokyo just went up and grabbed him, and you know where. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. <laughs> that story is still going around. <laughs> Perfect type for that kind of attack. Oh, yeah, because what well, he didn't was going to put up with it, though. Yeah, no. Yeah, they, they, were all that. they were all that way. They all were independent, great, great guys. I sold him a car one time. Yeah, a little uh, Toyota Tercel. Yeah, he, he fit in it perfect. I was going to say, how did that work <laughs> out? Did, any special arrangements for that? Oh, mean the car? Yeah, yeah just I, to be able to set, drive we that? Set up a, we set up a deal we, well, for his feet and everything else, so they'd put the boards up and build them up and everything else. It worked fine. It worked fine for him, yeah. He, had, he was... I hope he had a license. 
Doesn't matter now, but yeah, I guess. Doesn't matter uh, now, yeah. <laughs> hey, nowadays people are going around with uh, you know uh, templates on for five years, so I don't really know if that's a crime anymore. Oh, I, I know they got. I look at them now when I go to work sometimes up there at the casino, and I I see tags from from twenty twenty one still. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I know champ tags. <laughs> I know. Uh, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't not mention that obviously you had, uh, groups of fans that were at every show and at oh, some yeah. point it was somewhat of a, your own little family within the building. When you go here, heel or baby face at the time, but yeah. you know, what about, it didn't make the members, they all liked me no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> did it, did you ever get stuck by murder or Gertie height with a hat pin? No, okay. only Harley, I think did. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. No, they were good to me. Thank goodness. They give me a hard time every once in a while. I went the other side, though. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I was there when they had a birthday party, and they uh, in the ring they brought them a table up there, gave a cake to them, and uh, I can't remember who the the guy was in there with them. We, we was two of us. Yeah, he was an old timer too, and uh, we kind of wished him happy birthday and everything else. They did that at Memorial Hall. Yeah, that was a that was quite a night. They they were characters. They were all over. You saw them in Waterloo. You'd see them in in Ottawa, uh, Iowa. You'd see them. You'd see them all over the place. Did you they ever, were there? Did you ever hear the story? I'm sure you did about the guy that drove him around. His name was Bill Wilson. Yeah. And and Geigel told the story about how when he passed away, he wanted his ashes spread on the on the on the floor of Memorial Hall, and I guess he sat in a box in <laughs> Geigel's house for, like, years. Yeah, that's true. I think I saw the box. <laughs> <laughs> and he ev- he eventually spread them out, I believe, in the grass and from Memorial Hall, thinking that was just yeah. as good so he wouldn't get swept up by the janitor. But Yeah, that's uh, true. A true story. <laughs> that's funny. Well, tell me about yeah. Bob Geigel. I mean, guy, Bob I got to meet. I, I first saw Bob, and I think probably you too as a child, when I was – in my mid-teens when the Woodlands opened, and here is the entire uh, force of security guards were like professional wrestlers in their, in their life before, and it was amazing. Yeah, we didn't have too many problems. When we did, we, we took care of it real quick. <laughs> so in case you didn't know, the Woodlands is a horse and dog track, or was a horse and dog track in Kansas City, and when it opened, it was a palace. This place was awesome. I mean, I went there, I oh, believe yeah. it was the opening weekend, and that place was unbelievable. It's like Vegas in Kansas City, Kansas, and when you go up there, you had Bob Geigel, Bulldog Bob Brown, Mike George, Rufus uh, R. Jones. You had all these people uh, working security, and that's where I first got to meet him but then well first of all how was the woodlands and i'm sure you had a plenty of stories there because uh, everyone knew you oh yeah it was we had great times out there boy we they were having a up there in the kennel club they were having some problems down with some of the patrons were getting a little uh, unruly <laughs> and uh bob fritz he was in charge of security for second in charge he went down and talked to him he had us all stand at the top of the stairs and uh, he went down there and talked to the guy, and he says, now, if you have any problems, he says, I'll see the guys at the top of the stairs. We'll get that taken care of with them. <laughs> no more problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was something else. We, Bob Brown was the one. He'd start, to, he'd start stuff, and then we'd be the one going around picking up the glasses and all the radios that dropped down. He never finished the problems. <laughs> well, I never, I never got to know Bulldog Bob Brown. I mean, of oh, course, he, what a character. he's synonymous what with Kansas character. City. 
but I mean, like, what what was he like? I've heard nothing, but he was just uh, he was on all the time. It sounds like. Oh, he was he he really was a good guy, though. Really deep down. Yeah, I remember even one time when I was wrestling over in Columbia, Missouri. The, he was the, the baby face and I was the heel and the people were more for him. I mean, they were yelling, screaming, you know, for him to, you know, for like a baby face. It's just like, it was out of the world, out of my, out of my range. I didn't want to understand that though. Then I had an old man hit me in the eye over there. <laughs> Cause I had Brown on the floor. <laughs> that's, that's opposite yeah, he, from what I know. He, was, he, he, he went back and forth. I know, but he was known as a pretty strong heel here for many years. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he had the natural. It was, it was him. It was him. People were glad to see him out there at the Woodlands too, though. Oh yeah. It was so sad when he, he just had this, the heart attacks and just slowly just deteriorated though. Too bad. Went down to maybe, maybe 160 pounds. Wow. He was down. He was, he, he was always a big man. The whole family died young anyway. All of them, you know, his um, brothers and, and everything else up there in Canada. A lot of people not from this area will say, like, I can't believe Bob Brown was a, a main guy in a territory. He shouldn't have been that, you know, because based on he wasn't a very tall man. He was a big guy. Uh, I think when Gaggle said he met him, he weighed like 310 or something. something he was really oh, yeah, big. yeah, he was huge. And he, got, and he, and yeah. he leaned out some through the years. But uh, what, what would you say to people that say that? What, what did he have that other people didn't have? What made him a top guy here? He had the charisma, something about him. It, it was just you learned to hate him. it was just it was just him it's hard to explain but he fit the place people did say he stayed here too long he should have went different places but he didn't want to he had a family here too and you you, you try to take care of your family you really do and it is difficult in in that business so but yeah yeah I I, I, I wouldn't change any that much. I had my chances over in uh, Atlanta and everything else. And then I, my uh, uh, wife's mother had a stroke. And that the very week things were changing for me, I gave my notice and come back home. So you're talking All about, because you spent some time in WCW, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but things, are ha- things happened so fast. And I said, now i got to go back home. got to take care of the family first. Well, as you know, I mean, uh, how many you could probably count on one or two hands how many people you know that had a marriage going into wrestling and coming out of wrestling the same. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. That's for any – even when I worked up at WWF, I w- had no time to do anything. And I would never have – if I worked there, I probably would never have a marriage or children. So I can only imagine how bad it was for you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you can't have that. It just – it doesn't survive. Uh, you hope it does, and sometimes they do, but I haven't seen many that did. And I haven't seen many that did last long. What about it's, Rufus it's, R. Jones? How, this is another fan favorite. He was around a very long time here, and uh, you want to talk about charisma. If you go watch promos from him, it doesn't even matter if you understand what he says. The guy just exudes <laughs> charisma. Yeah, yeah, it was just that the knowledge had how to, what to do and what not to do. Yeah. yeah, he didn't like to get slammed. <laughs> he hated that with the passion. Does anybody? Oh, well, 
sometimes you get used to it after a while. Brown used to slam him. He'd bounce right up. <laughs> my God, you say, how's he doing it? You get to, you may slam him about four different times. And my God, you get tired of slamming him. <laughs> you don't know how they do, how he could do it. I couldn't do it that many times to bounce up like that, but he did. He could do it. Uh, he didn't get, oh, he was still kind of, arms were short and they were just, you know, he just moved different, but all of them are different. Everybody had their own thing. Rufus, he had that little strut he used to do, you know, and it's just, and, and you, you couldn't understand what he said, but still you knew what he meant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as we continue with some name association here, what about obviously Harley Race is synonymous with Kansas City and everything that he's done. Everyone has heard of Harley Race and professional wrestling. Yeah, yeah. What was he like as a friend, as a as a as a, a coworker of yours? He was a businessman, but but he was still he'd drink your beer with you, or you know he'd drink with you, party with you. But he but he was always a businessman. He was good at what he did. But uh, there'll never be another one like him. But once once he once he quit, and then Flair basically took the spot. It was did night and day difference. So you know, it was Flair was you could almost knew what he was going to do next in the ring. Harley, you didn't know, and you better watch what you're doing because he'll hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> but he's but he kept care of the business. That was very important. Business was his number one. He was synonymous with being called the toughest man ever in pro wrestling, but of course there's oh, other yeah. there's other guys thrown in there because I've, I've gotten to meet Haku multiple times, and he obviously has uh, a lot of stories around him too. But is that I mean Harley Race is top one or two guys that uh, apparently were one of the toughest guys. Is that in your opinion? Yes, Harley was. Harley was the toughest man that went through and tore up as much as he was. Yeah. And- in the first starting of his been the business, and when his wife got killed and his and his boy and stuff, mm-hmm. and then him to still be able to survive and come back, he had some he had some guts. He was he was phenomenal. He really was. You listen to him. I couldn't believe he was only a couple of years older than me. I just it was kind of kind of, and I really broke my heart when he died. He really did. Oh yes, I have so many friends that were trained by Harley and were friends with Harley. Yeah, and yeah there was a, it was a, a horrible time. But you're right, Harley to me for many years looked about this for two decades looked about the same age. Like he just he yeah, really, he, he, he looked this. He was like Steve Martin. He looked uh, he had that blonde hair, and I never could tell what age he was. Yeah, when he when he went came to the the they had a little wake deal for Geigel in North Kansas City up there. They, he came he came to it. He was over. He was in his wheelchair and everything else. He had that. But that, my problem with him right then, he had a faraway look. I went up to him and said, "Hello, Harley. This is Mike." And he just kind of looked at me like, you know, it was, it was sad. Yeah, it was. That was sad part right there. But but otherwise, in the ring, oh god dang, <laughs> you bet you're gonna go where he said you're gonna go. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like he said, he says that. Uh, if I would just traveled more, I probably would have went farther. My problem was was to be able to speak, do the interviews. I'm, I've always told the truth, and I always had, I always had to too. Just wasn't me otherwise. Hard to get into a sort of manufactured yeah, character. Yeah, yeah I, I, that wasn't me. I was a, I was a young kid 
good-looking kid. I think I still am. <laughs> <laughs> I still think I'm a kid, though. I know. The older I get, the more I understand my dad when he says, you know, I feel young, even though I'm, I'm not. But I, I, I feel I don't feel like I'm 60 something or whatever. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm 70. I got my dad's 96 years old going strong. Wow. Yeah. He drives, walks, you know, two miles a day. But he's just just phenomenal right there. That's, that's great genes. Oh, I, I want to stay around that long. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, were there anybody coming out of Central States that you worked with or that's got their young start here that you thought uh, this guy is going to go do something and then did it? And there were some that you thought were and then didn't do it. Yeah, uh, Dave Peterson. DJ Peterson, if you don't know, this guy, he had the look. He was very good in the ring, and he died tragically in a motorcycle accident, right? Yeah, it broke my heart. Everyone broke my heart. 18-wheeler pulled out in front of him, boom. That was a, he was living up in Iowa at the time. He quit the business. He he was even selling cars with me in St. Joe for a while. <laughs> Good kid. He was he, in high school. He was like, oh, I think he was about three years younger than me. Okay. Yeah, I remember I was I was a senior and he was a freshman. <laughs> I I used to go in there and I was doing amateur and he he hadn't got into that yet though. And the high school wrestling, and I, I used to get those guys up there and abuse them. Shame <laughs> on me. <laughs> but I did. <laughs> hey, that's how it was back then. That's how you taught people. Yeah, that's what, That's how you learn. You learn what to do and what not to do. Yeah. I mean, I wish I, you. I, look, I'm not I, – I, I, there's a whole bullying debate and all this other cancel culture stuff going on, but I will say, like, it does seem like sometimes – you can't be full-fledged horrible to people, but you can't be full-fledged, you know, just treat everybody with kid gloves, too. I mean, I don't know how you learn anything no, that way. No, no. That's the way we, we you know, when I work at down, down at the casino down there, you've got to be certain harder than be halfway decent, to, you know, because you can't. You can't be nice to everybody. If it is, you, they'll walk over you. That's the way anywhere. Yeah, but... I don't know. I I had I had I don't have many bad stories. I really don't. I, I really can't think of one. I hit. I remember a Tank Patton. I hit him one time. He says, "Damn." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then then all of a sudden he turned around and walked me. And damn, I said, "Wow." He said, "Now we're going to loosen up a little bit." <laughs> That's how you learn, right? Yeah. That was that was funny though. Yeah. Who was so, uh, Was there a notorious ribber in the Central States? Yeah. Oh, Mar- so I just I, I, I messaged Marty a few days ago, and when I told him that I was going to be talking to you, he was very excited. He said I didn't talk to you in a long time, but he's very happy to hear that you're still kicking up there in the Northland. And uh, I, he seems like a guy that, based on everything I've heard about, that he would have some pretty good stories. Oh, yeah, he's got some great stories, but some of them you don't want to tell. No. <laughs> Sometimes he does tell them, and he gets in trouble. Oh, I know it. I know it. Yeah, but he he was a great great river though, <laughs> him and uh, Scott Hall. Yeah, he tore a room up and and they had it under his names. And he was in Saint in Kansas City up there laying on a bench. Hall came in and did beat the holy heck out of him. <laughs> I've heard that story. Didn't I think? Did he was Marty? Uh, was Marty asleep? Uh, maybe this is a different. Yeah, story. laying on laying on one of those benches up there, laid out, stretched out. Well, I guess he got. This is the week before I got there. 
and I came in, <laughs> and I heard stories about it. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott Hall's another guy. He was another dude that that guy looked like. Uh, if you were going to draw a picture of a wrestler, it was Scott Hall. Yeah, Scott Hall. Yeah, both of they were both they were what are they called the towers. The the other guy he was with too. I'm trying to remember. Well, it was Spivey. Yeah, they were a, they were a tag there. Yeah, and uh, they were both really big dudes. Yeah, they were. They were big guys, big guys. There's a there's a show that I've never really. I, I remember Bob Geigel talked to me about it a little bit, but there was a show that happened when it was WWA, and this was 1989, and it happened at Memorial Hall in February of '89, and it was called the International Bash. Do you remember this show? Uh, that's the one where uh it was all japan pro wrestling was sort oh, of yeah and they and yeah. it, i think it was a horrible snowstorm and i think it barely I, I don't think it drew it was under a thousand people because i think it was a blizzard but they still had the show and that was one of the few times that the british bulldogs ever wrestled the rock and roll express but you were on this card um i believe you faced i think you faced dave peterson in a draw there but uh do you remember that card at all? Giant Baba was there. Yes. I remember that, and uh, I, Sato, and I can't remember too much more. But, yeah, it was it, it was supposed should have been a big draw, but when you have a storm come through like that here, it just stopped everything. It stopped everything. Too bad, too, because they spent a lot of money on that one. Yeah, that was when the WWA is basically the sort of the last installment of what Central States was when it came back, correct? And Geigel had sort of taken back control after sort yeah. of losing it for a little bit to Vince, and then he restarted. He was going to sell it, but then he said, "No, nah, I ain't going to." Yeah, he he, he just he, he was a man setting his ways, and you know he lost a lot of money, but as that that wasn't his deal deal to just give up and die. He wasn't going to. He was going to keep fighting it. That's what I say about Geigel to people. Geigel, from what I can could have told, he was high principle, lived in a very modest house. He wasn't like he wasn't some money grubbing promoter or anything. This guy was no. like a salt of the earth dude. And so when people say bad things about him, I'm like, you're only saying this because he's just a pretty simple, normal guy. <laughs> he's not a he's not some. Yeah, crazy they didn't know him. Yeah, they didn't know him. Yeah, yeah he was. He was a nice man, it really was. Uh, I remember we had him, him and me were tagged at the very get close to the end right there against uh, uh, Abdullah the Butcher and and uh, Rip Rogers. And Geigel looked at me one day, we're doing an interview, and he says, What am I doing this for? Why am I? <laughs> I about lost it right there. He says, Why am I here? Damn, look how old I'm. Damn, I don't. <laughs> But it was in his in his blood. He, he and he, I watched him at at, at the at the uh, woodlands out there when people would push him too much. I watched one day. Grab a head guy in the headline and took him down. Boom! <laughs> guy kept pushing him in the chest. I can I can take you. I can take you. Guy goes about maybe in his what uh, in his late seventies or something like that. And mm-hmm. he just he'd take it a little bit. And I said that was it. Snap. <laughs> Guy was down. <laughs> well, you know, Bob's feature. Bob had hands like Andre. He had huge features. This guy was a big oh, guy. Yeah. 
I mean, even well, he, in his 80s, he was a big guy. He, when he gave you a handshake, you knew you got a handshake. I mean, he was like a catcher's mitt. <laughs> That's an old farm boy. That's what it was. Yeah, I know. Farm. And that guy, yeah. people don't understand, this guy was working until he was like 88. He would go to like uh, the woodlands, still was like, it wasn't functioning as a track, but he was. He would go to that guard shack out there because he was basically given a job for life. And yeah. he, he was still doing that until almost, in, until he died. And he died at the age of 90. I think he fell, uh, and then, then they found him out there, he fell. And then he was downhill real fast after that. Broke the hip and... Well, both of them broke their hips, I think. His wife did, too. But he came back out of it, though. But it just wasn't the same. Wasn't the same. I tried to get him to go. I uh, had a deal for him to go over to uh, Atlanta to sign autographs and fly him over and back and everything else. And uh, he didn't understand what I was the one trying to do. Oh, that's but too bad. That was, yeah, was too bad. It was a two-day deal. and the money was good, and the flight, was, I was over and back one day. I was happy. <laughs> I mean, he was the NWA president on camera yeah. for years. So, I mean, he obviously, yeah. even if you weren't from around here, you would have known who he was. Yeah, yeah. They, they liked to have him, but he just didn't quite understand what I was going to do, what I had planned for him right there. But uh, that was that was close to the end. Do you remember uh, when we had that get-together at Memorial Hall for the documentary, Casey on the Mat? Uh, we had all you guys sitting up on the stage there, and everybody got to watch it. And he, he had – he was – you know, you all guys got a big ovation, but it was a it was a really fun night because, I you know, that was one of the last sort of big events that I think he got to be sort of celebrated yeah. at because he didn't grow up in this era of going to, you know, conventions and making money. Um, he was basically living with his wife quietly up north, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he was he was just down to earth. That that just that simple. He's an old Iowa Iowa farm boy is what he was, you know. And he never changed really though. Never really changed. But he was he was he, he could wrestle, that's for damn sure. Oh, he's <laughs> he, tough. He was he was a true one. If you wanted to you wanted to push on him too much, you you'd get get you get hurt. <laughs> no, he looked at, in his in his promo pics. He's just he was all he was no fat. He was pretty pretty lean no, and tough. He, yeah, he was. He always was. He was. I remember I went to one time to go up to his house and he he was maybe in his shorts, little short shorts on, and he had abs. You know, he had the the, the, the six pack. No problem for oh, no yeah. man. Unreal, yeah. <laughs> unreal. Well, the the great uh, late Roger Kirby, he told me uh, in that documentary that Vince McMahon destroyed our business, and he was very adamant about it, and very upset about it. Oh, is yeah. that is that how you feel? But my question is too: if you feel yes. that he was that way, do you think it would have happened anyway with cable television right around the corner? It was well, no, I don't think it would have happened as much. And uh, I think he's. McMahon is the one. He he ruined everything. He ruined the whole business. It, it'll like I said. They used to say when I come around, it says it was always better back before. You know, every every generation they always said that. Sure. But now, it it'll never be, never be the same. Never as uh, you could go to Japan. You were like a king over there, or you know they treated you excellent. But that'll never happen again like that. Never, never the Brody era and all that good stuff. And it'll, it'll never be the same. Uh, it's it just, he, he took it from the, the greatest sport 
and and ruined it, and uh, it ruined everybody from going someplace. These little little places try to start up deals. I feel sorry for them because it it's not it, you can't get going. It's very difficult because they they see the guys may be just as good as what's up there in New York, but it's just because they publicized it so much. Oh yeah, it'll never be never be the same. No, that's I it mean, breaks my heart. It, it, it breaks my heart. I don't even like watching it. Every once in a while, the only one I liked was when the last one with uh, Rock Lesnar and and the, the other guy Goldberg. Yeah, ah, uh, yeah, the, that was the best. Before that, it was Stone Stone Cold. He was a bit. I used to enjoy Stone Cold because you never knew what he was going to do. Sure, <laughs> he's like the old style. <laughs> people, well, like bringing that up, people talk about how, you know, it's just not the same for many reasons. The internet is, you get instantaneous results. You can't go to town to town and have the same show because people would just, just know everything oh, yeah. online. But then one thing that I always bring up to people when they talk about the difference between the territory days and today is that the guys, I mean, every once in a while you'll have a Rocky Maivia who ends up being like a diamond in the rough. But most of the guys yeah. that were big were in the were in the territories for years. And in Stone Cold, as you mentioned, one of the biggest, if not the biggest stars of all time. This guy didn't hit it big in WWE till he was in his mid to late 30s. That's right. And you got 24-year-olds yeah. out there trying to emulate him. And I'm like, it, they just don't have the seasoning just in life, no. in the ring, anything. Yeah, Dave Peterson tells stories about uh, Stone Cold. He was before he was Stone Cold uh, up here, and he's he was like helping get him started doing stuff. Yeah, he said, "My God, God's getting back at me all the bad things I did." <laughs> <laughs> he used to come up to my gym up there and say, "Jody, he come in, he just just shake his head sometimes." Boy, can't believe what's going. He said, "Just can't believe it," <laughs> but he's. <laughs> Yeah, but it did. Like I said, it'll never be the same. Thank God I got my memories. Thank God for that. Oh, I think I, and nostalgia for old wrestling is off the charts right now. I mean, this is one reason why we like talking about central states is because it's a overlooked territory, number one, but also just a lot of people oh, yeah. enjoy this part of their childhood. And uh, even though WWE is still making lots of money and AEW's around now, it's just like you said, it's apples to oranges, and it's just not. It just doesn't have the same allure that it once did. Yeah, I went up at the last to the AEW. Was it Minnesota or AWA? Was it? Yes. Yeah, it was. That's when it was dying. Yeah, I, I Sato and me went up there a couple of different times, and we, you know, we'd go to the TVs and stuff. And every once in a while, a few of the shows we'd work them up there, but it, you could tell things were on on the way out. Things just just TV was ruining it. That just that simple. That's, New York was ruining everything for everybody. That's when that's when Vern Gagne was still trying to hold on after WrestleManias had started, and he was still he had to deal with ESPN. So you would yeah. uh, you would still have some shows on there till I believe nineteen ninety ninety one right right around there. But yeah, uh, but yeah, it was uh, you you had a heck of a career, man. You were a huge star in Central States. Everyone in the area knows you, and everyone, like you said, everyone seems to love you. And uh, I just want to thank you for being on here with us because I, I can't think of a better guy to have tell me about Central States and be our first guest because um, you live most of it and you knew all the big names here, including yourself. And um, thank you for all the memories, man. 
Yeah, I wrestle almost all of them. I would say <laughs> uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed the Andre the Giant, I Flair, the Briscoes, Funks, you name it. I went through them all. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, and I, I, I that's basically it. I, I, I may not. Some people may not remember me, but a few people do at work up there. They, they come to you're Mike George, aren't you? Yeah. I remember you over there at Moy Hall. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's a good feel. Oh, I tell that's people all the feel. time. I send them over to the casino all the time. You're still at 7th Street, right? Yep, still send... there. I'm dispatcher, though. Oh, I send people over there looking for you because I'm like, hey, no, he's still around. He's over there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm here. I'm still there. <laughs> they're giving me a – they're having a big uh, uh, dinner tonight uh, downtown Kansas City for people anywhere from 5 to 10 years there. I've been there 13 and a half years. Nice. Yeah, I can't believe I've been there that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, I appreciate yeah. all your time, and thanks for everything you did for Central States, and I will talk with you soon. Okay, you take care. Thanks, Thank Mike. you very much. Thank you, I man. I appreciate all the people. It's the worst territory. Wow, what a great interview you conducted earlier today with Mike George, and I hope everybody listening got a lot out of that, and, that, and he was appeared to be a wealth of knowledge golf now who do, who else do we have or what are some of the other interviews you're hoping to conduct here in the in the in the near future well i just talked to billy howard he is a man that a lot of people know around here he has trained a lot of guys he he actually went on to have a cleaning company and some of the wrestlers worked for him for years after uh working in central states wrestling but he was a wrestler himself he went by billy howard uh, he's from Minnesota, I believe, but uh, he still lives in the Kansas City area. We'll be talking with him. Akio Sato, looking forward to talking with him because I was not able to oh, talk wow. with him uh, for the documentary because he, he was a truck driver and I never really was able to hook up with him. But he's another guy that spent some time in WWF and uh, has been in Kansas City for decades now. Uh, he's also married to... Um, Betty Nikolai, who was a female wrestler as well. So, you know, those are two guys that I wanted to talk to that are still living in Kansas City that took part in everything. You know, as we talked with Mike George earlier, um, I'm, I'm sad that I missed the era of Lord Littlebrook and Little Tokyo and all the, all the midget wrestlers that were up in St. Joseph, Missouri, because that's a topic we can touch on at some point in the future here, Gabe, because St. St. Joseph was the mecca of midget wrestling in America, and I just think that's always such a cool thing. We, we saw beautiful Bobby in NWL, which was one of Lord Littlebrook's children. And, yes. um, you know, it's, it's the, the tradition is still in his family, but, uh, but I'm looking forward to talking to all that, you know, Lord Littlebrook still has another son that I would like to talk to on there as well. Uh, Chris Doobie, I still want to have him on as well, but there's a lot of guys that, um, pass through here, of course, that we will be talking with, but I want to thank Mike George for being our first interview and talking all about his success in central States. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact and again, I, you know, we had beautiful Bobby in the NWL. I was aghast when everyone was like, oh, we're going to have a midget guy come work, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, we can't use the word midget. I actually talked to beautiful Bobby backstage and just so everybody's all clear on this. They actually, the performers that do, and you can look it up, Midget Extreme Wrestling. There's a bunch of actually midget promotions yes, out there. Yes, they I know where prefer, you're going. They prefer the word 
midgets. They want to be called midget wrestlers, so they don't yes. cancel. Okay, this is what they want to. It's not short. It's not small person wrestling or whatever. No, it's, that's not what they want to be called. But anyway, that that, that is not what they want to be called. Thanks for clearing that, that up, be, Gabe. Thank you. Yeah, I would be. I you know I don't I don't need the twit. I don't go on Twitter, but I know you kind of skin the edges, and I don't know any. I don't need anybody going after you. So that's oh, why. I well, thank you. I was very concerned about that. <laughs> All right, Chris. Now let's get to the final segment of the podcast that you have no idea what I'm about to throw at you. No. But it, it today, I, I, I like talking to you about pro wrestling, often off the air, on the air. Um, I've always enjoyed your, your, uh, your hot takes. So um, I'm going to let you choose your own adventure today. Now, to, the path to your left is Mount Rushmore. You can choose that path or you can choose the hot seat. So obviously, the Mount Rushmore is my top four favorite wrestlers. Ever asked me? No, okay. no, not necessarily. Um, let's go hot seat then. Come on. Okay. All right. So, in the hot seat, I am going to ask you just a series of random questions, okay. perhaps about pro wrestling, perhaps okay. about your personal life, and you just kind of give me a short, abbreviated answer, and then we'll Beautiful. just kind of go from there. Beautiful. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Most underrated tag team in the world currently currently ah uh, man um man that's a tough one uh you know i'd have to go with one of the you know i'd have to go with one of the ones that everyone talks about it had to be ftr the briscoe brothers but they're not really underrated i don't you know i don't if you're asking me for like an unknown team that i think is awesome that uh, don't get the yeah. love that they should i don't i don't necessarily have one because i don't watch a lot of tag team wrestling right now but um i think the the briscoe brothers just being sort of in uh oh you know sort of in purgatory they don't really have a, a place to be right now and i think the fact that they have never made it to either aew on the biggest stage or on wwe programming is pretty bad okay question number two what wrestler from the kansas city territory should be bigger than they actually are and that could be current or 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 pre oh well i mean if you're talking about current uh on the independent scene it would be jeremy wyatt uh, I also believe Dag Draper and Moonshine Mantel should all three be signed somewhere. They're all three great workers. Uh, they all three look good now. You know, they all three have charisma. Uh, those are three guys. You know, Arn Anderson came, and I know he was impressive with Moonshine and 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 Dak and Wyatt as well. So um, those three are the, on the independent side. Somebody that I talked about with Mike George that I just think uh, was the glue that held everything together in Kansas City, uh, not that he's unknown or anything, but just I just think that that Bob Geigel is just not remembered as, as well as he should be. Uh, I think it's because, and I've said this multiple times, it's because he was just a normal, simple guy. I mean, he was just he, not to sim, not simple in a bad way. Like he was not intelligent because he was very intelligent. He was just a laid back. He was very even keeled. He was never like too mad or too happy. He was just like super calm. And I just don't think that he ever brought attention to himself. And I think he doesn't get the love he deserves. All right, two more questions. Uh, I will just simply leave it at this. Uh, some, you know, again, sometimes we'll be long answers, sometimes we'll be short. Hannibal, pro or con? Uh, complete idiot. <laughs> you're not talking about Hannibal Smith from uh, A Team. You're talking about the hey, I'm Hannibal. That guy. <laughs> that no, guy. Idiot. <laughs> 
Oh, I love you. And last but not least, Chris, in today's hot seat, favorite drink. If you're talking about an alcoholic drink, um, I definitely always go with, well, it depends on where I'm at. When I'm in New Orleans, I get a not I get a strong hurricane, not uh not the I was Pat gonna o- say a hurricane. Not Pat O'Brien's uh like Kool-Aid water. I'm talking about like go to a real <laughs> bar that makes hurricanes in New Orleans and uh it's way different than the uh you know, the the crap that you get at the little everyday shops. But uh I bourbon is my drink of choice when I drink Gabe. A Sazerac or a Manhattan. Nice. Those are my favorites. Nice. Ooh. When I was a drinker, I loved a good Manhattan. Ooh. Well, you want to talk about a drink that people don't know how to make well? That if you go into a place and order a Manhattan, you were just rolling the dice, okay? Because it's, I'd say 75% of the time they suck. So uh, I would agree. Know. I would agree with that 100%. I would agree with that. And it's always and good I, when, I, the, the, when way, the bartender pulls out the book and like looks up oh, ingredients. Oh, oh, boy. Yeah, that's when you know it's, gonna, it's not just a roll of the dice. It's like you're getting nothing. You're getting yes. Just uh, just put it over ice. That's all. Just bourbon on yeah. ice. That's fine. Yeah, or, exactly. or neat. Either way. Well, okay. Actually, I, I'm going to ask you one more question because I because I want to know what does Chris Goff do to chill. Uh, my favorite thing to do in the world is to go to New Orleans, and um, that's like the only, we joke all the time because I talk about it constantly. But I go to New Orleans because I am away from uh, my business, and uh, mm-hmm. my parents are watching my kids. And you don't need to drive anywhere. And uh, I, that is about the only place where I have zero responsibilities. So that is probably my favorite. Other than that, I don't have a lot of chill time. I don't. I enjoy talking uh, wrestling with my friends. Uh, just and usually the wrestling consists of stuff that happened in the 80s, 90s, and possibly <laughs> right. making fun of stuff that's going on now. Um, <laughs> I, I do feel like that all the people that say that wrestling was better in our era, uh, that has no longer can happen anymore. I think that stopped in like 2000s. You can't do that now. Uh, it's not better now and it never will be. You could argue any other, you could, the seventies say they're the best sixties, you know, eighties, nineties, whatever. Uh, after the attitude era and the ruthless aggression era, I don't really know if there's an era where you can leave and say like, Hey, you know what? The 2010s were the best era. Okay. I mean, this is not even debatable. That's a joke. And, um, you know, for many reasons it doesn't exist. I mean, do you really think there's people that feel that way? Yeah, I think there are people that are in their 20s to 50s right now that would say, uh, I'm sorry, do you not, Gabe, you know, uh, you know that you, you read online. This is the best era to ever be a wrestling fan. Wrestling is more popular than ever. No, that's not true. What, that's not true at What all. it looks like metric-wise is that people that really like wrestling, you know, the world's niche now. People that like wrestling spend more money on it. That's probably true. You know, I'm not like if I have a, a professional wrestling show now, if I'm promoting an indie now, I don't promote to try to get the, you know, $10 kid tickets or whatever. Now I'm trying to promote to the, hey, uh, I'll get you a free autograph this and you get this and that ticket's $120 and I have 10 of those on the front row. You'll sell those faster nowadays because it's just, it's way more niche. And, um, you know, I, but it's, yes, I, it's, I, it, it, for the most part, Chris, I watch. I try to keep up as much as I can. And the reason why I don't keep up more is because I believe most of it's unwatchable, but from top to, from top to bottom, I I just, it's, it's uninteresting, uninspiring, just, I mean, there's some things that pop up that I think are good, but I, I, I I would agree with you. I I don't, I, I've been watching a lot of old Memphis stuff recently. 
Um, I always watch a lot of old WWF, NWA. Are you watching Memphis because of the Tales of the Territories? I mean, because uh, when I watch the Memphis show and I watch the Kaufman show, I'm like, I, I had to watch a lot of Andy Kaufman stuff because I, this just it takes me back. Now, it is interesting. I saw Joe Rogan. I saw a clip with him, and he just buries Andy Kaufman saying that he wasn't, he wasn't funny. He never was. People are now rewriting Wait. history like he's some kind of genius, and he's not. He and, was. And a lot of people don't like Andy Kaufman, but I, I, he was great. Great for professional wrestling. I mean, you could you could debate as a comedian what you think, but for professional wrestling, he helped pro wrestling big time. I, I completely agree, and Joe Rogan shouldn't, yeah, shouldn't say that. I, but yes, I've been watching Memphis wrestling, and also if anybody wants to see an amazing wrestling documentary outside of the one you did, of course, Chris, um, Memphis Heat is an incredible wrestling documentary. Yes, if, I have if that. You guys one. Want, it's very good. It is very it was it's well done it's well produced it doesn't look like one of the documentaries i still want to see and we'll talk about it at a later date is i never said i quit or something and it was like a magnum ta documentary okay no i've never seen that <laughs> anyways i want i, I you know because that's my that's my bag is you know all that nwa stuff but great interview today thank you so much chris for answering those questions i really appreciate it and man i think that's about it for the worst territory in the world this week uh, next week, come back. We'll talk more about the beautiful Central States territory and everything involved in the world of professional wrestling. Um, I'm Ben Miller. That's Chris Goff. And we'll see you next week right here on the worst territory in the world. It's the worst territory.